Frank, Frank, Frank. It is episode number 90. That is 10 away from 100. We made it somehow. I, I, I had confidence. Don't, don't listen to me. We, we're totally going to make it to 192. Just and that's in and stop. That's the well, I, I guess I just played our hand there. Whatever. <laughs> Can you imagine doing this podcast in 2020? Like that's going to happen. Uh, we're going to be talking about .NET Standard 4, the newest release of oh, iOS 20 with that cool like iRetina tracking software in it. That's going to be great. Mm-hmm. I like that. It's going to be very, um, you're going to have to basically whenever you, the cops come down the hallway, you'll put your hands up against the door and then they'll scan oh. everything. You think we'll be full big brother by then, but maybe they'll still let us have the show. Like, you know, probably the people, <laughs> they, <laughs> but we're not in the apocalyptic future yet, are we? So this is our favorite lightning talks episode. Yes. Five, six, seven, 18 topics in five minutes each. <laughs> you wish. That is our goal. <laughs> this is probably the best idea that you ever came up with forever in your life. I'm pretty sh- sure. I didn't have anything oh, to do with this. So This, this is mine? You're going to blame this on me? <laughs> yes. I'm pretty sure. You're like, hey, we already cover one topic a week. What if we covered six? <laughs> yeah. What if we made our job six times harder? What then, James? What would you say to that? <laughs> uh, I would say... It's awesome because many of our Twitter followers, people have written into the show, and on our Discord, our Patreon supporters have given us awesome topics. We really didn't have to come Mm -hmm. up with very many ourselves this week at all, which is pretty awesome. And this week is different because normally we just jump into lightning talks, Frank, but I think last week with WebAssembly and Blazor and all of this goodies that are out there in the world today... Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wanted to make sure that we did a little follow-up because I haven't oh, seen cool. comments on a on one of our shows on the website, usually via Twitter or via Discord, <laughs> but on the website, we had tons of feedback about it. And I wanted to do a little follow-up just to make sure we we levelize everything. Does that sound good? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we got comments on the website because it's web technology. See the pattern? No. <laughs> oh, I get it. Web developers are on the web. Yeah. No, uh, uh, there was a great reaction uh, to um, we running in WebAssembly, and that's kind of what we're talking about, I guess. And I, yeah, basically, I was just kind of thrilled with the reaction. I, I figured it could go two ways, people saying, why do this? And the other people saying, it doesn't work at all. What, what is this piece of garbage? So <laughs> uh, fortunately, it actually worked for I'm going to go with most people, not everyone, unfortunately. Uh, but the reaction was pretty positive overall. There weren't too many of the dangerous why questions that I was afraid of. Yeah, I think that there was a lot of good comments about how this is just going to enable a lot of developers that are already writing a bunch of C-sharp and F-sharp applications to get rid of some of those JavaScript things, run some more logic in the browser directly. But I think to me, my biggest confusion that I saw and got some feedback as of, all right, you guys talked about Blazor a little bit. You talked about this UE forms. You talked about this (laughs) WebAssembly. When would I use each and what specifically is this UE forms thing is an official thing? What does it support? What doesn't it? Because we're always talking about Xamarin forms in the web. And hey, I built soundbite.fm 100%. I tweeted, I said, I built this (laughs) website in Xamarin forms and people are like, what? And Miguel was all like, wahoo. And then I was like, here's the source code. Uh, Only for Miguel, for Miguel's eyes only was the source code. And he goes, 
this is beautiful. And I go, thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, uh, <laughs> you got a code review from Miguel. I didn't know that. Actually, you've been a great beta tester um, because when I first wrote Wii, I was thinking more web apps like forms, like inputting data, outputting data, that kind of stuff. But you built like a proper old traditional website with it. I was like, oh boy, <laughs> wasn't really designed for that, but I'm going to make sure it works well in that scenario. So you, you've, you've actually been pretty great for that. Yeah. Uh, there have been a few little hiccups though. You know, you know what's hitting me? Uh, the library the most? corporate networks and their terrible networks <laughs> so of course corporate networks are blocking anything that's new and fancy so it's actually been a little bit of an issue with people filing bugs like hey this thing doesn't work at all and you're like gosh darn it corpnet <laughs> stop blocking internet traffic it's fine <laughs> so there have been a few issues along with that there's actually um some fun stuff uh you have to run it under a little server it's not an intelligent server just a little server i wrote it in python it turns out windows installs python 3 by default and i wrote uh... it for python 2 so a little bit of hiccups for the windows people but it's uh really cool i now tell people to use this tool called .NET Serve, and you can install it real easy with like .NET tool dash G install. I don't know. Look it up. And you get this like little web server that's globally installed, and it's real easy. So now I'm pointing people to use that cool little tech in the .NET Core world. I like that. I like that. That's a good, that's a good point. Cause I just used and built in ASP.NET core things. And a lot of people I saw kind of were like, Hey, I'm just going to take my entire application and throw it at it. And I go, Hmm, that's not really, <laughs> you shouldn't really do that. And like, for me, I was building just a separate website and that was my goal with, uh, with it. And I'm not even using WebAssembly because we talked about, I don't need to use WebAssembly because I want all that rich metadata. I want those robots to scrape, uh, the website mm -hmm. and get the information off of it. However, I could see if I was running just simple logic type applications or whatever, I could run those in, in the WebAssembly part. Yeah. But be aware that, yeah, you know, you're not you're not necessarily taking your existing ASP.NET Core website and just throwing it into Blazor. You're not just taking your existing Xamarin Forms app and running it in UI or in or mm -hmm. we, I should say, or <laughs> we WASM. And I think you've updated your docs really accordingly. So hopefully we've cleared up a little bit of that i don't know I, that's how i mean that was the biggest thing is hey things work a little bit different in a browser compared to on a mobile application so that's yeah something i take into consideration plus a few little annoying little bugs like images not working i knew that would bite me in the butt and it bit me in the butt everyone wants yeah. images to work yeah <laughs> so but that's just growing pains yeah yeah i just had to release without images because I was excited. <laughs> for the WASM part of the side, right? Not for the actual... For the WASM. Oh, yeah. We images work great. You run a whole website. Yes. Perfect. All right. You ready to do this? Any other follow-up feedback that you want to tackle? All right. Oh, no. That's plenty. Thanks for sticking with it, everyone. <laughs> All right. Cool. So let's jump into it. We are going to mark our clocks. Are you ready for it? go and oh yeah our first topic was something that i just kind of randomly was really interested in by a lot of our conversations uh on the podcast that may lead into other types of uh conversation for us and it's leading to this lightning talk which is i decided to use a twitter poll and ask yeah. our users some questions i figured we discuss it and uh the first one was what's your favorite mobile slash desktop platform to develop for and i said Options were because Twitter only lets four. Okay, so I put oh, iOS. Right? Okay. Yeah, only four. So iOS, Android, UWP, macOS, and it was thirty-five percent for iOS, thirty-six oh, for Android. 
Oh. <laughs> no, no, no. 30, 36 for Android, 26 for UWP, and three for Mac OS. But that's not really fair. What? Um, yeah. Semi-biased these Twitter polls are. Uh, but that's pretty great. That's uh, very interesting. So let's say at least people who pay attention to you and us, I guess, um, 50-50 split between iOS and Android. That's interesting. And UWP making a much stronger showing honestly, then I, w- I would have guessed. I think at least myself and in your world, we're a little Android and iOS biased, and we don't do too many UWP apps. So it's great to know, at least our listeners and other people are writing them. So we should probably talk a little bit more about it from time to time. I think so. And it's also hard with four options, because also a lot of people wrote in and, and, and respond, and they mm-hmm. said, oh, you know, web is actually my favorite platform. Oh, and you left it off completely. Sure. Yeah. Didn't think of that. <laughs> and then we also had some good feedback, which was, hey, you know, WPF, my favorite, because it pays the bills. And that's probably true. Yeah. Yeah. You can't argue with that one. <laughs> I, I, I still maintain an MFC app, so I totally get that. <laughs> So what is your favorite, as of 2018, what is your favorite platform to develop for? Me? iOS. I, I, I still find going iOS first to be a very pleasurable experience. Um, I just, the simulator works well, the devices work well, the tooling's in excellent shape, the API I know inside and out. So go iOS. Mm, interesting. You know what my answer is going to be. UWP. Tizen. No. Nope. Um, no? Ooh, uh, that's no, a good one. Tizen's pretty field. cool. Deep cut. Yeah. <laughs> Deep cut. Tizen would be really cool if I could expense a bunch of televisions and watches and things. Uh-huh. <laughs> I would say my favorite platform. Mm, here's my thing. Favorite APIs? iOS. Mm. And What? Awesome. We, we, we get the honor award or something there. <laughs> you, you get like the yeah, honorary reward because for iOS, I say... I, I'm creating some new APIs with a bunch of team members. I said, what did Apple do? Because most likely that is the correct way to do it. Uh, I really like their APIs. I think they're very elegant and well thought out. Uh, however, I still am an Android fanboy. I still think that the crazy complexity of everything that's in there, the API mess, mm. the UI mess, <laughs> it, it just makes me happy and, and sad and mad right. all at the same time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. See, I, I love Android's capabilities, but I do find their API just kind of redonkerous, a little mm-hmm. over-engineered, a little unclear, and super configurable. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, but I get where you're coming from. Like As a device and everything, you, you got to kind of love it because it does include literally everything thing yeah it's that's why i like it so much is it there's limitless possibilities but it's interesting because i think we've talked about it from time and time again which is apple is slowly opening the platform a little bit more and then google is slowly (laughs) closing the platform a little bit more apple being open explain yourself i don't know what you're saying well what i mean by that is they're kind of loosening some of the background things that you can do. They're enhancing the notifications or adding more flexibility for an app where. Yeah. Okay. Android has always been way too open. So now Google is kind of closing <laughs> some of those things like in Android P, which is coming out. You can no longer have the camera on when your application's closed. Of course. Why would you be able oh. to do that? Why would you be able to do that anyways? Cause Android. Well, it's probably making the security business mad. But now they have to just turn off the screen or put a black screen up or something like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, there's always reasons. Like when, when they shut something off like this, you know, it's killing a whole app market. And that's the reason they haven't done it yet. So the, I'm, I'm sure they actually do have good reasons. 
I mean, that's why people go to Android because they're tired of the iOS sandbox. I think. Yeah, I agree. I think that's. I think it's a problem, but at the same time, those APIs so pretty, so pretty. <laughs> All right, what you got for us next, Frank? All right. So this question came in, and it was well, basically, how do you deal with a learning things, but b not getting kind of swallowed up in the endeavor of learning things because there's just so much out there to learn. So how do we pick and choose? How do we not abandon our entire life in the pursuit of knowledge, I guess? I don't know. I, I feel like, um, at least for myself, it is easy to rabbit hole, to deep dive, to kind of get lost in a new technology, um, and then kind of find myself out in the forest in a week and wonder what happened. And I wonder, does that ever happen to you? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess that question for you when you say rabbit hole, are you saying that you kind of start learning a new technology and then it just spirals out of control and you need to learn every little bit of it? Is that what we mean there? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I can't learn by watching other people do something. I have to do it. So I have to install the software. I have to run the code. I have to read the code. I have to break the code. I have to do all these things to actually learn something. Otherwise, I just watch a video and it all just kind of goes over me. Yeah, I'm not a video. I'm not a reading person. I'm not a video person. I I recently gave a talk on a, a, a keynote called .NET Everywhere, and I went over ASP.NET Core, ASP.NET, Docker Images, Xamarin, .NET Embedding, uh, WebAssembly. I went over all this technology, and I am definitely not an expert in any of them. That is for sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, however, I was like, I'm going to get a high level overview, ask some experts. But it, when I'm really interested in learning something, I do like watching introductory videos to say, am I even interested okay. in this? I've been like, oh, this is a new tech. Let me watch this you know, 20 minute YouTube yes. video from a conference or no. something. That's good. I am <laughs> all about interactive code lab doing i like to do i like to do yeah you know and yeah when i got started with xamarin i went into our they're called recipes at the time i don't think we really do too many of them now but oh. they were like do you want to learn about bluetooth do this do you want to learn about this thing do that do you want to do this and i was like i'm going to just do all this stuff and i'm not building an app but i'm building the concepts within how to do it in the mm -hmm. app and that's what really kind of helped me learn See, I'm still not good at that. I'm not, I, I love uh, maybe a five minute video to get me hooked. Here's the idea. Then I love a getting started guide that basically does the hello world for whatever technology it is. But after that, I find that I kind of have to work on my own project. I can't follow recipes. I can't follow the advanced guide or anything like that. Immediately, I just have to kind of pick a project and try to start building it and, and learn along the way. And I find that that's just, the way <laughs> that I work, the way that I learn, and it's much faster that way. Plus, in the end, who knows, you might actually get something out of it. Yeah, that's true. And I think when I got started with mobile development, when people ask me how to get started with mobile development, you know, I say, pick pick out something that really interests you and in a very small to medium-sized app that like is something that is a problem that you've always wanted to have solved. I think I did this with Scoreboard, <laughs> which is I really yeah. want to keep track of scores and there's probably apps that do it, but what if I built it myself and it'll be a few pages. And within that application, I learned if I hadn't already known it, I would have learned preferences and, you know, saving mm -hmm. data around and yep. animations and ads and database. And just in that small four or five page application. And that I think you're right is the best way to learn is build 
something. It doesn't have to be a huge, ginormous application, but no. something. And and honestly, I usually fail at it. Like every time I try to create something new in a new technology, it usually is a bust, but it's it's how much did I learn during it. So like I found a neural network I love that can convert an image to an image. And immediately I said, weather prediction, this thing can predict the weather. And so I started like training it and training it. And I learned all the thousands of reasons why I was a complete idiot on why this thing can't learn <laughs> weather prediction. <laughs> but it, so it was a complete failure. But Honestly, I spent like a week trying to predict the weather. <laughs> and just from all those failures, I learned so much about what neural networks are capable capable of and not. And I think what I've learned from it, too, is something that you just hinted at, which is I know when I go into a new technology, I am going to fail. I'm going to struggle. I'm learning this. <laughs> and yes, don't, important. Don't get mad at the technology get right you know learn and look at the resources out there be mad that maybe that resource isn't out there but it probably is you just got to find it so be okay with failure at the beginning and take it on its own terms if the tutorial is written for linux and you've never used a linux machine before guess what go get a linux machine and use linux like you don't want to introduce the added burden of trying to convert something while you're learning it yeah (laughs) pro tip all right next one is actually via an email Uh, And I think also in our Discord chat as well, which was handling source control, specifically not where do you source or put your source control, but if you're working on multiple machines, maybe it's a Linux machine Mm. and a Windows machine and a Mac machine, how do you synchronize your code? And I think there's two aspects of this that we should talk about, which is solo developer, right? Uh, I'm on the same machine 100% and also enterprise Mm. development, I guess. (laughs) Well, you know, even as a solo developer, I'm surprised at how much I'm bouncing around between machines. And oftentimes, it's virtual machines for me. I'll create uh, testing environments, essentially. And then I'll even use my source control to like move binaries around. It's terrible. I I, I do terrible things. But I I think even as a solo developer, I bounce around quite a bit. So for me, I generally rely on uh, Git and GitHub is being the central thing, and then each machine is basically synchronizing with GitHub to stay in sync with each other. But that's not the full story. I think everyone who's listened knows I do a terrible thing is I keep all my Git directories under Dropbox also. So literally every machine I have has a copy of all my source code automatically synced continuously. Interesting. That's my trick. Mm. It's a, it's an awesome trick. There's a lot of benefits, but you have to be very careful, especially when bouncing between Windows and not Windows, because Windows likes to change file endings or fi- line endings and stuff like that. But for keeping copies of the source code around, nothing beats it. I agree. However, I've never done it because I know how file syncing <laughs> works. I know how good it is. I have both OneDrive and Google Drive and Dropbox, all the all the syncing services yeah. on my machine. Yeah, <laughs> um, collect them all. Here's what I do. So I often bop around between a Windows machine and a Mac machine. And to be honest with you, I just use branches. And when I work on something, I'm always checking in code. I love checking in code all the time, just nonstop checking in code. Um, yeah. And and it depends if I have a build server, then. You know, I have a build server that's going to be doing stuff, but if mm-hmm. I don't, that's okay too. And I just synchronize the code. When I need to go to another machine, I just push the code and pull down pull. the code. Yeah. I don't know. That just seems to work for me. And I don't know. Running GitHub then, right? You're not running your own central server or anything like that. You're like me, just GitHubbing. Yeah. So almost everything there. Almost all of my code in life is on GitHub. I have a little bit of code in VSTS, but it's just Git. Mm. So I think. 
it doesn't yeah. matter. I can use Git command line tools, Git desktop. I can use Tower. Mm-hmm. I can use Visual Studio. And that's what I sort of like around it is that since I'm using just a Git server, I can use all of these tools and I don't have to worry about where it's being hosted. So even if it is on VSTS, I'm still using Git right. and I'm still pulling down those code, that <laughs> code. And then for me, I like that check-in ability where I know what I did at what time. I will say that there is a drawback to that, which is if I forget to check in code and I forget that machine, well, I don't have those changes anymore. <laughs> so, yeah, you have to. I think that's also what the Dropbox is protecting me from is sometimes you can totally forget to check in code. It doesn't happen often, but when it does, it can really bite you. And in general, I feel like source code, source control is a solved problem. I don't, I, I've never felt so secure as I do like today where all my code is oh, yeah. and that I know how to access it and update it. Um, it's like, Every day I find a project that I don't have in Git and I move it into Git and I just feel so liberated and good. I just start changing it immediately. <laughs> so I feel like we're in a really good state in the world and you have a lot of options. Yeah. And the other thing I've been doing too is on all of my machines, I install Chrome Remote Desktop, which is a Chrome yeah, extension thingy. That's smart. I think I've been, I, I need to get into that because I've been having trouble screen sharing between a mm. bunch of my computers, but I hear this thing kind of cuts through all the network. <laughs> it does. And it's nice because it is, is all tied to your Gmail account or your Google account. So when you log into Chrome desktop, it shows you all of your machines, you know, not, you don't have to remember a file that does a bunch of things and Um, And that's been really nice. So if I do forget something or I need to log into a server, which is down here, I just log in and boom, I'm good to go. Yeah, it it really doesn't happen to me that often. It's amazing that I'm able to basically pick up any computer, put Git on it, and I'm okay. But every so often, I've really wanted to be able to log into my computer (laughs) from not my computer. And it's I I, I would have traded big dollars to be able to do it at the time. (laughs) Chrome Remote Desktop. Go, Go install it. Do it. Mm -hmm. Just do it. Just do it, Frank. All right. Also, something else to do. We'll take a quick break here and thank our amazing sponsor this week, MFractor. Yes, go install this tool right now if you're on a Mac. Just go do it because I have a free getting started light version of this thing. MFractor is absolutely astonishing. It is going to help you write better, cleaner code and also make you more productive by doing things that you're doing over and over and over again. It's just going to do it for you. MFractor is an extension to Visual Studio for Mac that gives you XAML Ultra Super Crazy IntelliSense, 100 plus XAML inspections and refractorings, refractorings, refactorings, um, <laughs> image tooling, and it does a whole bunch of stuff for not only just Xamarin development, but C Sharp Android development in the box. And what I mean by that is in your XAML, you can just hover over an image, .png, and it just shows you the image. You can Let's say you have a text, highlight the text in the property and say, create the binding. It'll automatically create the binding for you. Better yet, do you need to translate your app? It'll automatically scaffold all of the translations files for you and you don't have to do anything. It'll handle navigation, clicking back and forth. It gives you all of these crazy, super smart IntelliSense options that really just make you way more productive on a daily day basis. And on top of that, they just added a whole bunch of new features like, Hey, what if we were just to like auto scale, auto resize all of your images for you and do your icons, do everything for you. They'll automatically say, Hey, choose your, your, uh, image that you want. What do you want the base size to be? It will factor out one X, two X, three X HDPI, MDPI. You want a color picker? They got a color. They have everything, Frank. It's absolutely astonishing. In fact, I am 
a pro member. I've upgraded to MFractor Professional, which all of our listeners can and get a sweet 10% coupon code. So try out the free version first, see if you like it, you're going to love it, and then you're going to upgrade, you're going to buy this thing, get all the awesome updates, and you can use coupon code MERGE-CONFLICT at checkout to get 10% off. All you got to do is go to mfractor.com, that's M-F-R-A-C-T-O-R.com. You can go and get that in the show notes below, and thanks to MFractor for sponsoring the show. Thanks, Mfractor. Yeah. You're refractoring with Mfractor. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I love these uh, pro tools. Super cool. Especially the binding generator. So good. Come on. Yeah. Who wants to type that? Oh, it's just like <laughs> I was just the other day. This is off topic now, but I was trying to create a code snippet. Uh, <laughs> and it's like, so hard to do, uh, apparently, in Visual <laughs> Studio. And I was like, oh, and how do you do this? On a, there needs to be a great, amazing tool that the teams need to build for this because how many times have you created a public setter property back and forth, back and forth with the set properties? Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm just going to create a snippet. And it took me like an hour to create the snippet, but it's now saving me yeah. a bajillion hours when I work. So I got into them heavy at one point. I had like a table view snippet <laughs> where I could just tab tab and create a whole table view controller. <laughs> All right. Enough about snippets. Let's talk about our next topic, which came in back to it, came in from one of our listeners uh, around serverless compute. And what we're talking about there are products such as AWS Lambda, Azure Functions, and a bunch of other ones out there that offer you a way of running functions and only pay for compute. So traditionally, you would have a web server, you hit a URL, it processes a bunch of data, or you upload something, and then you pay to have your server on 24-7. But with serverless compute, Mm -hmm. it's kind of event-driven. So I uploaded an image into Azure Storage, and then it'll pull that down, process it, and then pump it into a different storage account, all scaled. And you would only pay for the milliseconds. So I guess the question is not what is serverless compute, but what would you use it for, and are you using it today? So, Frank, Hmm. go for it. Oh, me first? Sure. (laughs) Well, no, I'm certainly not using it today, but that's simply because my server needs have been so basic so far. Basically, any server I need is just a CMS. It's just holding some documents and some user accounts, not doing anything that interesting, to be thoroughly honest. It's just a database. But that said, I absolutely love the idea of serverless technology. I think this is how the web should have always worked. I mean, who wants to pay for a VM sitting there doing nothing most of the time? It really should just be, here's an endpoint, here are the conditions to run it, here's a little bit of code to run, go and do it. So I'm very excited by the serverless thing. I also think it's funny because it's like, well, of course, that's how it should run, but yeah. <laughs> so I'll throw it back at you. What are you using it for? So I am using it quite often. And um, mostly I'm, I'm trying to think about when I'm developing a backend for my application, what is that type of logic that is kind of inside of my controllers that are doing processing that don't need to be there. And a good example of that is uh, this app that we built called uh, GeoContacts, which is kind of a contact application for like a employee directory, but it enables people to geotag their location like Foursquare style. Got it? Oh yeah, nice. So 
Tracking people. Tracking people. 1984. We talked about this. Yes. So the <laughs> Azure function, you pass it the user's coordinates and you're logged in and it does the auth part of it. And what it will do on the back end in an Azure function is process those coordinates, find the city, and then scramble those coordinates to be generic. So that way we're not actually storing mm. into Cosmos DB the exact precise location, but we're storing Seattle, Redmond, et cetera. And gotcha. you could do that on the user's phone. Yes. But why do it on the phone where you can have it on the back end and you can change that logic at any time? The mm. other thing we're using it for is that we store in a unique entry for every check-in, but we only care about the last seven days. So we have a nightly Azure function that runs that, guess what, deletes anything that's older than seven days. And it's just like a cron job. Oh. It's like a cron job. That's it. Yeah. yeah. You know what? I never even considered that like super basic use of it. Of course, yeah, just have a trigger at midnight every night. That's funny. Yeah. I never even, yeah. The other thing I'm... (laughs) The simplest trigger. Yeah, the other thing I'm thinking about using it for is my RSS aggregation, because right now that is hosted in the server alongside the website. But I'm thinking of just moving all of that data logic into an Azure function, and then that would only get hit at certain points. I'm not sure how it would work that out. Maybe the server would still be there, Mm -hmm. but I'm now paying for the execution time and the function kind of some different ways of thinking about it but it's really about that event driven stuff because you can trigger off of anything off of time off of a database entry and output to things i think that's where you need to start thinking about it and i think you have some use cases at some point i'm sure because people are uploading data to calca and stuff all the time well i'll I'll even give a basic one i'm I'm not doing it myself um but alexa apps Mm. whenever i use the word sorry dingus apps um (laughs) whenever you want to write one it just hits an endpoint so there's no sense in running a whole server for that endpoint it's a perfect use case for serverless and so i've actually that's my most experience in serverless is creating uh dingus apps and they're super fun um, but yeah, for sure. I mean, like I said, it's just a better way for technology. I don't think I would run a website on it, like a static website, but pretty much maybe that's what I do. Have a static website, do everything else through functions. There you go. Yeah, you could definitely do that and you know, host some WASM in that in that function. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and on a, that just feels like the future. Yeah. Uh, every, no one's going to be want renting whole servers. It's just too much. I agree. And then those things, I mean, they are on a server. You just have to think about the infrastructure. I sure. Think nice. Yeah. No scale up, scale down. Just, just run my code. Just do it. <laughs> just do it. Just run my code. So let's talk about that. The next topic is, well, I got a little lecture at the MVP summit that we talked about. And in that lecture, uh, Rob Prouse, uh, creator, maintainer, all the above of NUnit, my favorite test framework. And I think he said something along the lines of, Frank, you're terrible at testing your apps. <laughs> and I said, yes, sir, I am, because you can always be a better tester, I think. So as a as a developer, I've definitely um, internalized unit tests. And any tricky logic in my code, I write tests for because you want to be able to change that code. You want to write regressions. You want to find a bug and put it into a test so that you don't make those mistakes. But I still feel like, as always, there's room to improve. But let's start there. Do you, where do you feel like you stand in the testing world? Uh, um, <laughs> testing is very important for applications. Everyone should be testing their applications fully, including their business logic, their user interface, and do functional and integration testing. It's very important, Frank, that you test. That was the that was the most sincere thing I've ever heard you say in your life. That was beautiful. Thank you. Um, I'm going to take that to heart and start 
unit testing. Or, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. <laughs> UI testing. I, I still don't UI test. Um, and I made the point to Rob that the, the best I've gotten to UI testing is taking screenshots. And I think we've talked about it on this podcast before. And that basically boils down to acceptance tests. So I'll do my best to get the app into a state, take a screenshot, save that somewhere, and then the test will fail if the screenshot changes and I have to reapprove them. I don't, I don't even want to argue that this is good testing. What I, <laughs> what I will say is it's better than zero testing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like better than zero testing isn't such an honorable position, but I'm glad I've at least gotten to that point. So I will say the reason that me personally, James Montemagno, have a hard time testing is that I feel as though it's not quite at the point where everything feels crazy integrated, where when I just create a project mm-hmm. and I'm developing on it and I put it in CI that everything just runs and it doesn't. So for instance, we're working on this thing called Caboodle that is a secret project that's built in the open. So it's not that secret. However, (laughs) this is one of my favorite examples as this is going to be an officially supported library and it has to be really bulletproof. And what we've created are not only um, an ASP, it's a, it's a .NET core test runner that tests the API surface We then have device runner tests, which give us integration tests when we're processing logic that get run on a simulator emulator in CI. We have sample projects for final validation testing when we're testing it and anyone can pull it down. Um, And and those all get run. And we're then finally going to build UI tests just to also do smoke Mm. tests on them as well on those sample tests. So we can then take those samples, create unit tests on top of them or UI tests on top of them. Yeah. And this has a team behind it and people doing this work. Okay. <laughs> uh, John Dick is amazing. And there's great teams for both N unit and X unit doing this work. I just, it's, I mean, I should, I know I should do it. I know I should do more. I know. And I just have a hard time. It's like eating apples. I know I should eat 20 a day. That's the current recommended dose, believe, right? 20 apples 20 a day. or 30, 20 or 30. Yeah, it changes sometimes. Yeah, yeah um, I, I think we do run into the problem of um, we're kind of busy running the app. And that sounds terrible. This is all the stuff that TDD people yell at us for. So basically, I just always feel guilty. You can never do enough. You should test more. Um, for for personally, how I think I'll test better. Uh, in the past, I really, I really love the NUnit integration into Visual Studio for Mac. I like the little test runner. I like it when it turns green. It's a real nice little dopamine mm-hmm. hit. But um, that was forcing me to stay within the um, .NET standard and cross-platform code. I wasn't testing like iOS-specific code or Android-specific code. So these days, I am running the device-specific test runner. And that allows me to test that device-specific code. So I am trying to improve there of... Uh, not just test the logic, but test some of the native stuff. Too. Yeah, and I think it's always going to be hard to test everything that you possibly are doing in your application, which comes down to that final integration and functional testing of I'm, I actually need to test my yeah. application by hand. And maybe I've done some things that minimize that work, but I'm still going to test every single in and out because who knows what I broke? Everything. <laughs> yeah you know yeah uh, uh, regression tests i i, I love those <laughs> write the test when you realize you broke exactly it. done <laughs> all right final ish topic for this week uh come from another listener benny who wrote in and he says he loves the podcast which we appreciate that we love our podcast too uh and benny asks 
would you please discuss the, in quotes, threat from PWA, which is Progressive Web App? Oh, threat. threat. The threat. Are they coming over the hillside? Yeah. <laughs> I think that this here is between Progressive Web Apps, which I'll explain here and then we can discuss them, between not only just Xamarin, but native applications or any framework. So this would be a threat a- across anything because... Oh. Great. Yeah. A progressive... Because pro- I've had this argument for the last 15 years. This will yeah. be great. <laughs> progressive web apps are essentially a website that gets bundled into an installation that can get bookmarked on a on a, on a a phone. So Twitter Lite, I wrote a review, which I have in the show notes of Twitter Lite from about a year ago, which I went to the mobile Twitter site and it says, do you want to add this to your desktop? And I say yes. And it gives the the web page, more integration, such as nice splash screens. They can do better push notifications. They can do background service workers. They have some more functionality to do offline caching. And progressive web apps kind of, you know, this, we can do more and this is great. But at the same time, there was limitations as though there's really nothing for Windows. There was nothing for iOS. You could, but couldn't. And nowadays, things are changing a little bit more because in iOS 11.3, they're adding some service workers for background scripts and offline apps. And Microsoft just released a PWA maker for websites, for Edge-type applications that kind of get installed and booted up. So I have a lot of input on it, but have you thought about or cared about PWAs at all? Um, Honestly, only in so much as I've been doing the WebAssembly stuff and it's been popping up. Um, Until now, I just haven't had any need to package up a web app. I paid a little bit attention to it because, honestly, I just like to follow the web. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I like to know what their current technologies are, and I uh, wanted to see what Google was trying to do in this space. I think if you're uh, an app house, honestly, this is for advertisers and people making uh, content websites. Like I, I can't imagine too many app developers wanting to go through the whole progressive web app thing. But I think for all the content producers on the web, which is the giant majority of the web, this is just an excellent um, packaging technology for them to get it running on the device nicely. If you're a web app developer, like I was referring to earlier, I'm sure you're absolutely in love with this thing, but it's not really my area, right? I don't want to be a web app developer, so I don't have that strong of an opinion on it beyond that. Yeah, I think on my side of things, I think that it's cool. I have some friends that worked on the Starbucks PWA, which was pretty cool. Uh, Um, I do use Twitter Lite just because I want to have a worse experience and not check my phone very often. Yeah. <laughs> That's my reason for using PWAs. Right. Not to say that the Twitter light's bad, so, it's okay, but no. here's what I say, Frank. You're kind of correct. When okay. people come to me and say, should I just go 100% PWA? And I say, people like to install apps. That's what they're used to. No one wants to use their browser. They want to install apps and that's what they want. Now, if you're a small shop developer, your best reach is going to be a native application that gets installed, Okay. If you're a big corporation, a McDonald's, a Starbucks, a Twitter, a Facebook, of course you want a PWA that lives alongside your native mobile application because you want to reach everybody that possibly could do it. Yeah. Because you have a lot of teams that do everything possible. (laughs) And that's what you want. Well, it's... It's why I said it was advertisers, because they're the ones that absolutely need to reach 100% of the market. Whereas 
idiot artisanal programmers like me are happy uh, picking our tiny little segment of the market to serve. But if I was a international advertisement company, no way. You, you, you got to be literally everywhere in every form. So that's just, it comes with the job. And that's not what I'm serving. And that's why I haven't quite needed yeah, it. Yeah. And I would say that if you are a web developer, well, there are plenty of web native you know apps that you can build with like react native or other things like that that you can package up and get access to everything but that's not to say if you are really comfortable and already have an app if you already have a website that is a perfect fit for an extension of a pwa then do it that's fine too but i think that all of this can live side by side and things can you know grow and we have watches and tvs and i want to hit everywhere and i think that's the biggest thing however one final thing Mm -hmm is our good friend Adam Peedley, uh, who runs XamarinHelp.com, wrote a great article on how to take last week's subject of using we.wasm for WebAssembly and bundling a Xamarin Forms application into a progressive web app. So that is in the show notes. So have fun with that, internet. <laughs> and it kind of blew my Prince mind. bananas. That was super cool. <laughs> Do I want to write this code? No, but could I? That's kind of cool. <laughs> so, Yeah. <laughs> I want the freedom to say no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, James, I'm going to break the rules. We have a little bonus topic. Can you handle this? I'm ready. I'm ready. All right. We've been getting a lot of feedback. Everyone wants to know your and my opinions on Flutter, Flutterio, Flutter.io, Flutterio. I like Flutterio, which is uh, there's a video going around. It's a new UI framework using not a new language, but a very new-ish language called Dart. Uh, for writing cross-platform web apps. Have you seen the video? I I followed Flutter for uh, over a year now when they announced the alpha at Google I.O. and everyone kind of brushed it off. And then over the last (laughs) year, there's been a gaining momentum. And this is is Google's cross-platform iOS and Android uh, platform. And Mm -hmm. it has some cool features that are really cool. And it uses Dart, which is very C-sharp, F-sharp, Swift-ish to some sense, I would say. (laughs) Sure. Uh, It's a C family language. It's it's pretty standard. Um, It looks like a weird Java, C-sharp, Objective-C hybrid. (laughs) It was definitely built for the lifting the state type of approach with the Redux type of uh, mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think it's really new. Uh, it really intrigues me. It's uh, giving us some other ideas off of how they're doing kind of state reloading and UI reloading and how we can yeah. improve our tools. Uh, now I will say like, for me, the biggest part is that I've, I've watched a bunch of videos on it and I've gone through a lot of it. I would still say it's still early. It's in beta technically as of today, it's not quite as easy as from my perspective of downloading Visual Studio and I'm good to go. I got to figure out what tools I need. Do I use VS Code? Do I use a clip? Like, what do I use mm-hmm. to to do it and bundle it up? It still feels very much like React Native, very command line-y. And you know me, Frank, I don't like the command line. That's not <laughs> my life. Um, no, none at all. Yeah, but okay. I think it's really interesting. I think that for me, though, I'm still a C-sharp XAML developer and I have a cross-platform framework and I also have a great platform that I can target specific things. The biggest thing for me, Frank, I would say at this point is that while I think Flutter is very interesting, it is the in new hotness of the moment, uh, is I'm kind of curious to see what it means for companies that are like, oh, maybe I want to go to Apple Watch or I want to go to Apple TV or I want to go to other platforms. What does that code sharing story look like? And And what are the plug-in type infrastructure and how do I mesh this together for long-term 
um, reusability when I'm shoving a bunch of Java and Swift into my application because I want those mm-hmm. native features. So yeah. to me, it seems cool, like quick win, productivity, whiz, bang. But I'm I'm interested in the six-month, 12-month projects and see how that fleshes out, if that's going to be successful or not. Oof, that was super high level. I, I really enjoyed that. <laughs> I, I'm going to take a, a little low-level perspective and just name a few things that I like and don't like about it. Uh, Dart the language, not not too impressed. It is just a, a Swift and C sharp. Not to say Swift and C sharp aren't awesome languages. I would just hope to see like an advancement, right? I'm a programming language nerd. I want to see something new introduced. So there, they're just kind of standard languages. Uh, it does use the Redux style, like you said, and it allows them to do this cool hot loading trick, which was less impressive once you actually get to try it yourself because it actually has to reload whenever you change the class layout, which I'm like, nah, 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 that's always been Java's problem. That's our problem in C Sharp. So they, they didn't solve the hard problem, which was a little sad for me. But what they did do is create a really nice high performance uh, UI kit, which is cross-platform. There's pros and cons to these. We've all made fun of our bad uh, uh, Java apps in the past, swing apps and all that stuff. But, you know, again, if you're like an ad company and you literally want to hit 100% of people by writing zero lines of code, then this probably sounds nice. Yeah. To and I think so funny. I think that yeah. I think you hit a good point because it is 100% very similar. You, you can tweak it for iOS or Android, but their ideas material everywhere. So if you want the same exact looking mm-hmm. app everywhere, I think that's always the case. Do I want the same exact app everywhere? Or do I want native apps everywhere? And yeah, it's you, there's is no one framework really to do that today, you know, in general um, that can do you pick or choose. So it'd be kind of interesting to see where that maps out down the line of um, mobile development yeah. and what other frameworks may come up with. I will say it's all built on Skia, which is cool. And we obviously have Skia Sharp, mm-hmm. which is we've talked about it before and is yep. quite lovely. <laughs> Uh, and I'm doing a lot more with that recently. And, and that's pretty, pretty nice mm-hmm. to know that there's a lot of things that you can do. But I think, I think it's hard because for me, if I'm an, if I'm a Swift developer today and like, that's my, if I'm Marco, right. Ding the mm-hmm. bell, but the Marco bell, yeah. Ding. what does Marco it. think about flutter? I can, I'd imagine, <laughs> I'd love to ask him, maybe we'll have him on uh, the show. I think we can guess in this case though. Exactly. And if we have, a, you know, a, a company that's invested four years in Xamarin development, what do they think about it? If you're someone brand new, I think that's where the interest comes from as well, or I'm in between yeah, projects. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. But it's an exciting yeah. product. I I, I want to see what they do with it. I think competition is always, always. good. Um, they have a long way to go. Like, we, we joke about how .NET runs literally everywhere, and Flutter runs on iOS and Android, and that's great. But, um, you know... Let's see it in 10 yeah. years. I'm interested. I'm interested to see. I'm excited. I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing it. You know, I'm not, I'm not down on. Aren't you? No, oh, okay. no, I don't think we poo-pooed anything. No, no, no. We did not poo-poo. No poo-poo platter. No, no, no. We're good. I'm a technologist. I love everything. I, I won't be using it, but I love it. I love it all. <laughs> Bring it all on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, well, this has been lightning talks with a bonus topic. That is correct. We finally. Woo! Seven. seven. Yes. Oh we my did God. It. We did it. <laughs> Uh, we, we have to thank all of our amazing listeners that brought us to episode number 90, lots of great feedback via Twitter, 
via our website at mergeconflict.fm and the contact button where you can send us an email. And of course, all of our amazing patrons that have been supporting us, not only um, with great conversation, but with tweets to get all the great stuff that we've sent them. They get great rewards and you can become a patron by going to mergeconflict.fm and hitting the support button up there. And that'll show you how to get uh, onto the Patreon where you just donate a few bucks here and there and you get a bunch of goodies and we've sent out all the goodies and they're pretty awesome. And I'm excited because at the six month mark, people get exclusive things. And I'm now, I'm just spending more and more money to buy really cool <laughs> promotional items. Oh my God. Very, I just dropped off some at your house and how cool were they? Don't tell anyone what it was, but how cool were they? They were really yes. cool people. You're going to be, you're so jealous of me yeah. right now. You totally. should be. Um, that's it. Anything else from you, Frank? No, I think we said a lot in yeah. this episode. Let's see how many, uh, well, we do thank everyone for listening. Don't forget to support all of our shows on soundbite.fm. You can head to soundbite.fm to learn more, such as our awesome other podcasts, podcasts such as The V-Spot and Coffeehouse Blunders and a whole bunch more coming online soon. So go check it out and subscribe to all of them today. Go do it and go ahead and subscribe to this show. And until next time, this has been another episode of Merch Conflict. I'm James Montemagno. And I'm Frank Krueger. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.